Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, ambassador of 805 Connect and your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University's School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and encouragement. And thanks to our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, for this great studio and to Patrick, my co-host. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, Mark. So nice to see you again. How are you? I'm excellent in every way. These conversations continue to just kind of really stimulate even more interesting conversations. It's really been fun. We're 25 episodes in. I can't even believe it. I'm, th- I'm thrilled. It's, this has been such a, a great show for us, and we've been really uh, excited to promote it and, uh, and brag about it. It's a great show to brag about. And today, our guest is Dr. Keith Witt. Keith, how are you? I am great today. I love that. So, Keith, we met Keith about four years ago, and you were on the stage at TEDx American Riviera, uh-huh. and you knocked it out of the park, and we asked you back the second year, and the third year you said, I'm going to be on the stage three years in a row, <laughs> and I saw a YouTube video you had done that uh, in three minutes just was spectacular, and we got you on stage doing that, but that's not what you do. You're a... Uh, technically, it says you're a clinical psychologist, lecturer, and author. Yes. And in on your website, it says relationships determine our quality of life. Relationships do much better in harmony, harmony that most of us feel as love. Yes. This, the audience that's listening to this, the 805 Connect audience, and, and now people actually all around the world listening, they come to this for business advice or encouragement. They maybe to be inspired, maybe to learn something new, and I and you've inspired me quite a bit in um, kind of understanding myself as I understand my role in business. Mm-hmm. So I, where I know you work with with individuals and couples and do a lot of that, I kind of want to vector us in this next forty five minutes towards that. The, the CEO, the entrepreneur, the, that, that, that one percenter who's trying to make a difference in the world. And that's where I want to, that's where I'd like to end up at the end of this. And how we get there, we'll see. Sounds wonderful. So you, you've, how many years have you been practicing? I've been doing psychotherapy for 41 years. I've wow. had over 55,000 therapy sessions and thousands of groups and and many, many lectures and classes and so on that I've taught. What's your favorite part of that? Um, I am ceaselessly amazed by human genius, human creativity, um, human uh, superpowers. Um, uh, the, the most messed up, uh, distressed, screwed up human being has more uh, power and capacity than the most sophisticated other species that we've ever discovered. Um, And I find it everywhere. I find it in every person that I work with. And it's inspiring. Uh, It's it's beautiful. And it keeps me fascinated. Are they aware they have a superpower? Most people are not aware that they have superpowers. (laughs) Part of my job, which is a fun part of being a therapist, is to teach people about their superpowers. Human development is very, very difficult for a variety of reasons. What, what, okay, so when, when you say human development, what do, you, what do you mean by that exactly? I mean, growing from, from infant to adult is tremendously challenging. Mm-hmm. Human self-awareness uh, is relatively recent from an evolutionary standpoint. The human brain didn't become even close to its modern form until 50,000 years ago. So from an evolutionary standpoint, we have these drives and these instincts that inform Mm. us that have been developing for billions of years. And now we have self-aware consciousness on top of that. And self-aware consciousness takes these drives and wants to turn them into art, wants to turn them into extraordinary forms, relationships, uh, technological uh, advances, um, uh, position on power hierarchies, and so on. Um, and the human developmental arc is such that 
Um, we develop capacities to deceive ourselves before we're mature enough to be mm. able to self-regulate ourselves. Mm. And so every human being, by the time they make it to adolescence, has um, a, a vast, implicit, uh, unconscious um, reactions to threat that um, take them away from true north when it comes to listening to their, their heart, and listening to their deeper wisdom. And so the, the whole psychotherapy field um, evolved to help people find true north um, and to fulfill the purpose that every human being discovers that they have uh, as they live. And with CEOs, that's uh, extra demanding. Um, one of the most demanding professions that there is, really. And I'm, I've been a CEO my whole life, it feels like. Yeah, or you been have. At the top, <laughs> you know, started my first business when I was 12. Um, it, it's demanding, but in the context you're talking about, it's kind of go off on that a little bit more. Well, there's a difference between entrepreneurs and CEOs. Mm. Entrepreneurs have a vision, and they want to create it. Um, and if they're successful, as we, we know uh, you, you can be, but uh, you generally need to fail quite often before you're successful, hmm. um, then you create something. You create a company that requires um, a CEO. Uh, often the skills that make you an entrepreneur or a founder are not the skills that optimize sure. you as a CEO. And one of the big problems that a lot of companies have, particularly mid-sized companies, is the founder becomes a CEO and they were a great scientist or they're a great entrepreneur and they're a miserable CEO <laughs> and they don't have the psychological capacity to notice that. They're not receiving the influence from other people to tell them to grow. And so that causes problems. And that's why a cottage industry in this country where billions of dollars is being spent is on management development. Um, hmm. Now, there's advantages and disadvantages to management development also because people tend to grow through stages and they're of, of, of maturity of ego and you can accelerate that developmental process and so um, it, it, it provides enormous challenges when you know, even when someone says I want help how do I help this person be effective um, and like I said the CEO position is is one of the most challenging positions that there is uh, the pressures on on CEOs are enormous from a variety of directions uh, you say you're a C CPO, a, C a CEO of a of a relatively uh, large organization. You have a board of directors that you have to satisfy. Um, you have stockholders that you have to satisfy. Um, you have a management team that you have to keep tuned. You have workers that um, are either doing better or worse. You have customers. You have a product that has to, in the, today's marketplace, has to keep on progressing and becoming better. You have a family that has all the demands mm, of a regular mm, family. Mm. You have a body that has all the demands of everybody's body. Mm. Um, you have your own fears and anxieties and defenses. You have the challenges of power because power tends to uh, bring with it hazards. Um, uh, with, you have the challenges of the developmental stages of an organization. Um, a CEO of an organization in the beginning stages is not the, doesn't needs different, has different skill sets that a CEO in an organization that has a more um, uh, mature level of organizational development. And so the, in that position, which is an impossible position, <laughs> men and women, right. Uh, do it. And th the stresses have effects on them. Usually what breaks down is um, their body or their family. Most CEOs, by the time they make it to the head of an organization, are sturdy enough psychologically that their psychology doesn't break down. They don't, they don't go crazy or get depressed or get, you know, uh, I'm not going to get out of bed. I'm too anxious to get in the car to go to work. Mm. That generally doesn't happen. Though you, you get some, some, some symptoms. You have their body break down or you have their family break down. And often, often that's when they end up uh, coming to me. Or sometimes they've heard that um, I'm helpful in helping people um, develop uh, the kind of personal skills that you need to to um, be a CEO and they'll, they'll find me and track me down and come work with me. I'm thinking of the back to superpowers because I'm yeah. really intrigued with that. And the CEO, you, you mentioned 12 different stress 
factors. Yeah. Twelve things to pay attention to, and there's there's probably twelve to the power of twelve mm -hmm. uh, that you have to worry about. You also talked about psychological sturdiness, which I just love that as a term. Mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting. We could probably talk an hour on that. What are the superpowers that you would hope that the CEO has or you help them discover that they have that are going to be most effective for them? Um, well, one of the most important ones is the ability to receive wise influence. What does that mean? That means that a lot of people are trying to influence you when you're a CEO. And so you need to discern whether that influence is wise or not wise whether it's coming from a position that is going to support the mission of your company um, and the health of your company, or whether it's not. Um, and you need people to help you with that. If you discern that it's wise, then your job is to follow it. Um, mm -hmm. And there's an awful lot of pressure on, uh, d d generally, an organization, if there's one person that an organization reflects, it reflects the CEO. And so the CEO needs to be someone so that if the organization is reflecting, they're reflecting someone that has integrity. They're reflecting, uh, they're, it's reflecting someone that is willing to grow. It's reflecting someone that is fair. It's reflecting um, someone that values um, uh, every person um, and respects every person's um, uh, uh, rights and, and, and needs. Um, it's someone who is, holds the larger purpose of the company in mind and uses that as a guide in all the decisions that they make. And so a CEO needs to embody these qualities and then to create and maintain a culture in an in in organization, which is tremendously difficult, where those qualities are, are kept alive and kept um, um, authentic. Uh, mm -hmm. One of my favorite management consultants is Dave Logan, who wrote a book called Tribal Leadership. Brilliant book. He's a, uh, uh, in the business school at, at SC. And he defined five levels of, of leadership. Um, and um, uh, starting with people that basically are disaffected, uh, um, going to people that... Um, uh, basically feel like things are unfair, going to people that feel like they're the center of, of the action and that all uh, decisions need to go through them, going to someone who is able to connect other people and to sell them on the mission of the organization, going to someone that has a larger mission even than the organization's mission, and they're committed to that. Um, they found that the, the farther you are on that scale as a leader, the more effective your company is and the happier your company is. Mm. And we can see this mm. in, in certain companies around the country. Jack Welch was an example of a, a tribal um, four leader. Uh, Steve Jobs was a tribal five leader. Um, he didn't just want to connect everybody and create great products. He wanted to change the world. Um, now, you can't just establish that and have it go in an organization. That, that, uh, um, that mission needs to be renewed regularly. Uh, uh, Dave Logan recommends that every six months the people meet together and say, what's our current um, mission? You know, uh, how are our core values uh, being embodied and how should we change them? Um, uh, what's the next 90 days? Uh, and this is very exhausting to have to keep this going. Um, and if you're a CEO, you have to keep this going all the time. Um, you have to institute um, systems into your, in your company um, that, that, that um, uh, embody this while still keeping it personal and alive. Uh, very difficult. Um, and so... Uh, some CEOs do it quite well, but they don't take care of themselves and they break down. Some CEOs uh, do it um, quite well in some areas and then break down in other areas. Uh, you know, I find it interesting that the part of the brain that has to do with empathic resonance. Oh, oh, oh I have to hold it right there. Yeah, he had it. So we play on eight to five conversations. We play something called buzzword bingo. Oh, okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I'm not even sure. E empathetic Resonance? Empathic resonance. Empathic resonance. So um, for the person who's listening, who's uh -huh. not a trained clinical psychologist and given 55,000 sessions, mm -hmm. you need to explain that, please. 
Empathic resonance is I look at you, you look at me. I have mirror neurons in my brain, which are motor neurons, which resonate with thousands of nonverbal indicators, and you have them. And we begin to recapitulate each other's states of consciousness, including our intentionality. That's empathy. That's me feeling what it's like inside you and you feeling what it's like inside me. This is a human superpower. This is something mm. that we all have that can be mm. developed. And it has to do with particular areas. It's, it's centered in particular areas in the frontal cortex, particularly the right frontal cortex. Now, interestingly, theory of mind, which is another one I'm going to explain, in other words, me understanding you as a thinking being that has motivation and that, that can be influenced by things that I say and do, um, that's social cognition, that's theory of mind. That's a different area. So I can have an understanding of who you are and how to affect you, but not have much empathic resonance with you. Um, if I don't have empathic resonance, but I'm really good at understanding who you are and, and altering how you behave, then I'm beginning to be a little bit sociopathic, a little bit crazy. Hmm. And indeed, hmm. uh, CEOs have three times the rate of, of sociopathy than the normal population, as well as three times the rate of depression as the normal population. Because somebody that doesn't particularly resonate with other people but is good at manipulating other people is somebody that can fulfill a lot of the functions that I mentioned around running a big company. But feel isolated while doing it. Um, they personally are not going to feel isolated, but they're not going to have a, a lot of human resonance okay. with other people's human experiences in that environment. And ultimately what that is is a corrupting influence on the organization. If people in the organization do not feel cared about as human people, they will become cynical. And cynical people in an organization will then work against the larger mm -hmm. mission of the organization. And this is another principle of organizations. All organizations, all institutions have, have corruption that are, that's a natural part of those institutions. You can't have an institution without it. What a good CEO does is he recognizes that there's this, this influence, steady influence, corrupting influence of, of his organization, and has mechanisms in place that constantly work to reduce the corruption and to get people uh, focused and refocused again and again on their mission in the organization. And he can't just do this with the organization. He has to do this with himself mm -hmm. because there are corrupting influences of being a CEO. So... so I'm going to take the high road and assume that by corruption, this isn't graft and bribery and petty theft, but you're, you're talking about corruption of, a, of a, another kind. Absolutely. Um, spiritual corruption. Um, if you have a lot of power and you use that power, you begin to feel a certain amount of grandiosity and a certain amount of entitlement. If you're in an organization where you're important to the organization and you get stressed, you feel entitlement. You feel stress entitlement in that organization. If you have a lot of people that project importance onto you, say you're the head of a billion-dollar corporation. Hmm. So people around you want to tell you nice things that you like. Um, they're in, invested in, in not telling you something that's going to piss you off at them because they've projected sure. a lot of power, and you do have a lot of power. Um, and so th these are corrupting influences. So you can begin to think that, uh, that, um, that a decision you make is good just because you made it. Mm. Good example mm. of this is Lee Iacocca. Lee Iacocca had what's called a fixed mindset. Lee Iacocca didn't like uh, people that challenged him around him. Um, and uh, he believed that, you know, that he had to get it right. and He didn't like feeling dumb. But he was really brilliant. So he saved Chrysler. But after Chrysler got on its feet, he didn't bring in more brilliant people. He didn't want to keep Chrysler growing. And so the company began to founder, and he had to leave. Um, what a good, uh, effective CEO has, uh, Jack Welch has this, Jobs has this, Akeda Patagonia has this. Their thing is, we can always be better. I can always be better. Sure. Us company can always be better. And they don't just say it. They embody it. And they don't just have top-down processes. They want people's wisdom. They want people's ideas. Um, uh, the guy who took over Alcoa uh, in, uh, I forget his name. Uh, Alcoa wasn't doing well. This guy took it over. Um, he, he became the secretary of, uh, he became the, the treasury secretary. What was his name? Uh, 
Someone will put it in the comments. Someone will put it in the comments. Anyway, the first thing that he did is he came in and he said, you know, um, we have the lowest accident rate in our industry, but that's not okay with me. Too many of our people are being injured in these Mm, factories. mm. I want it to be zero. zero. I challenge everyone in our organization to do it. That's the most important thing to me. Well, this profoundly impacted his, mm, his mm. relationship. Huge manufacturing company. Yeah, he, Alcoa, you know, sure. uh, aluminum, uh, factories, uh, dangerous. Fraught in, with peril. Fraught with peril. Um, and so that was his, he, his idea to his mission to do this, changed the culture of that company. Nobody in the company, down to the the guy who was you know who was carting the aluminum to the trucks, thought he was doing this for any other reason other than this guy doesn't want anybody to be hurt in our company. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul O'Neill. Paul O'Neill. Yeah, there it is. The computer okay. did that. I didn't. Yeah, thank you, computer. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, so that's an example, okay, of 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 somebody authentically working with the culture. Now. If you're CEO, you still have a family and a body. So, and you know, families will be very forgiving in a crisis. They'll say, sure, you know, you can be away. Of course you have to be away for two weeks. You're doing a a multi-million dollar deal. Um, Oh yeah, I understand you can't come, you can't be home until 10 o'clock. You know, you're you're working on the contracts. Um, But that's temporary. If that becomes a way of life, you start getting angry husbands and wives and distressed children. Angry husbands and wives and distressed children tend to produce problems and, and demand attention. You know, you might be a CEO, but you're still my dad. You're still my mom. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> add into this that if you're a CEO, say you're a guy, this happens, but it happens with women too. Power is very attractive to other human beings. We have innate drives to have position on uh, merit-based hierarchies and on personally important power hierarchies. And we, have, we project a certain amount of luminance on people that are at the top of those hierarchies. Okay, so if your fidelity uh, value isn't in sol- solid, um, you're at risk to take that projection and have other relationships, have affairs. Um, uh, uh, Groupie, is, the word groupies comes to mind. Well, it could. Are there CEO groupies? Yes, but it could be your CFO that you do it with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, quite, and more often than not, it is. The proximity thing. It's the proximity thing. And also the people that work closest with you find the part of you that's most dedicated to mm-hmm. other people. And it's very attractive. You know, you go to work, you know, you come home and, you know. I'd like to eat dinner. I'd like to watch the, the U.S. Open on tennis. And I just don't want anybody asking me for anything. Okay. But at your work, someone comes to you. And then if you're a good CEO, you go, okay, your needs are important. I want to pay attention to them. And no matter how tired I am, you put yourself second and then do that. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that one of the fantasies of CEOs that I work with, a common one, is I want to get in a car or a motorcycle. And I just want to head off someplace all, without, without a phone for days at a time. Now, personally, that doesn't attract me, but I'm not a CEO. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and it's interesting how often that particular, you know, they'll have motorcycles that they go do this with. Um, or, or two, cars. two come to mind. One gets on his Ducati <laughs> and he's in Atlanta and he'll go all the way up the Appalachian Trail mm-hmm. and be gone for two or three days. And I talked to a guy last week who was touting how he had gone for three days and yeah, no audio, no external stim at all, just free to be. Yeah. The, the fantasy is I, I, I can't say no to the demands or manage the demands. I have to get away from the demands. Now, that's good for a vacation, but ultimately, if you want to be CEO, you have to manage the demands. You have to set boundaries that include your health and your family. Is that a superpower, Keith? Yes. <laughs> that's another superpower. I'm going to keep going back to superpowers because I, I think that we're, we're talking about the one percenters, uh-huh. those people who, you know, you're, they're at the top of that food chain. Um, and I think you've got to have superpowers to be successful. I think that you do. So um, what is that one, that superpower? that we're, Well, would you put a name to it? I'd call it, 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 it a broad t- term would be depth of consciousness. 
you, you need to have a broad view. You need to have hmm. a broad view of yourself and of your company and of the people around you. Um, these are a variety of, of, of cultures that are intertwined with each other. And you need to have an understanding of all of them and how they all fit together. Because when you do, including the culture of your family and mm-hmm. in your own psychology. And your body, as you said. And your body. As you do, then you can take whatever the mission is of your, of your company and combine that with the mission of your family and of your relationship with your husband or your wife and weave them together, work them so that all of them are healthy. And notice when one of them stops being healthy and give it attention. Um, one of the big dangers of being a CEO is you get so caught up in the health of your family, I mean of your company, that you dissociate from the messages that you're getting from your body or your family. Um, sometimes you get so caught up in the profitability of your company hmm. that you get dissociated from the messages that come up through the management about corruption happening in the system, about people being disenchanted or people um, um, not making the uh, organization work more smoothly instead making it work less smoothly. Um, and the bigger an organization, the more of a danger that is. Uh, and in that sense, CEOs, have, you need to have an empathic sense, as I was talking about earlier, but you also need to be able to fire people. Um, so if you're not able to fire people, you're going to be a bad CEO. Uh, uh, and, if you don't f- and you have to feel a little bad about it. What did Welch say about um, every year trimming 10%? I don't know if he's, I, I, I'm not aware of that. That was his, that was kind of his thing. Well, that's, Every year, we're going to take, we're, we're pruning. Well, and, and if, he, if he's doing that randomly, that'll kill. I don't think it was random. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Randomly, that would kill, kill an or, a culture. If you're doing it in terms of, if you're not on board with, with the mission of the company, and if you're not making everybody else better, um, we're going to notice. And, um, and if you are, we're going to notice. And so the, the subtext needs to be, if everybody's doing it well, nobody gets fired. And if, yes. and if somebody's really, and if a lot of people are screwing up, 15%. But there's, a, there's a, 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 an understanding of, if you deliver in the way you're supposed to deliver, both technically and psychologically, you're going to be honored and respected in this, in this culture. Hmm. Um, when people leave companies, they don't generally leave them primarily because of money. They leave them because um, either they haven't been included in a loop that they believe they should be. They don't believe that they've been treated um, uh, uh, fairly, that that something is unfair. And there's information that's happening that's relevant to them that people haven't given them. This just drives people crazy. It drives them. Good employees will leave an organization. And it's the CEO's job to make sure that doesn't happen. And, you know, even if it's somebody a couple of levels away from him doing that, he's still responsible Mm -hmm, or she's still mm -hmm. responsible to do something about that. One of the best things that I heard about a CEO once, this was the CEO of local cottage hospital. I heard this good thing. Um, uh, 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 Someone said, you know, when people ask him, uh, bring him problems, the first thing he says is, what's the right thing to do? We ask the person who gives him the problem that. Yeah, that that when the, his first his, his first sir. question is all right, what's the right thing to do? Ron Worth is the name of the guy. Yeah. Well, I was very impressed with that. I th- I thought that's what you want. That's the reputation that you want as a CEO, mm. um, uh, because everybody has that subjective sense. Then, if something's wrong, all I got to do is get it to Ron, and he's going to ask himself, what's the right thing to do? Okay, um, and. He, human beings are wired that if they have one bad experience with somebody, they tend to identify them with that bad experience. So this puts a lot of pressure on a CEO because every single encounter you have with anybody could be experienced by that person as a bad one unless you're focused on doing the right thing. That's a defining moment going forward then. Yeah, and then then that becomes another superpower, which is I need to walk through the world embodying and walk through this organization embodying the, the values that I want this organization to have. And if I have one slip, I might lose a person. And sometimes this happens. And sometimes you lose a person even if you don't have a slip, and then you have to do something about it. And it, and it wasn't your fault, because they're on their own path. Yeah, people project all kinds of things on the CEOs. Um, uh, the one thing that, that CEOs like about working with me is that 
I enjoy them, you know, man to man or man to woman, and it doesn't it doesn't affect me much whether their company's worth ten million or a hundred million or a billion or whatever. I deal with them as people with all these qualities that need to be addressed and so on, and. And they're not used to that. You know, generally, the more mm. successful you are, the more people are dealing with you as a symbol rather than as a person, mm. you know, which is a lonely thing. And we, sure. And, you know, that comes with the territory to a certain extent. Um, and also, you're not allowed really to have down days because one of the jobs of the CEO is to, be the, to project the mission of the company to everybody and articulate it uh, and be good at articulating it. Um, and this is sometimes where founders become bad CEOs. They might be great founders, but not particularly good at articulating the mission of their company or not particularly good at helping other people do that. And so often I don't, I don't encounter those guys much. I encounter you know, their, their, their number two person or their sons and daughters or somebody who's going, what do I do with this person? And then I, my job is to help them manage up to their CEO and hopefully get that, that person involved in some kind of developmental process. Great segue, the word development. Yeah. Earlier you were talking about human development and going from, you know, through the phases of development, being a teenager and adolescent and young adult and right. go through my 20s and 30s and 40s and, mm-hmm. and, and that whole path. And we're learning the whole time, hopefully developing the whole time. And there's that. And then you, you also said management development. Yes. And so there is developing as a manager of people and yes. getting good at that. And I don't know that we consciously think about that. Mm-hmm. Am I always developing that skill? Am I continuing to do that? And I think there is the third development, which is the stage that my company is. It's that embryonic we're just nurturing. I'm in nursery. It's the pre-incubation. It's accelerating. It's rapid growth to maturity. It's all of those phases. So trying now I'm, I'm seeing these three sine waves yeah. trying to sync those waves up. Am I on the right path? That's right. And if you're a CEO, it's your job to sync them. And you have to sync them from whatever developmental level you have. Um, we grow through stages of adult development. Uh, uh, development doesn't stop. Uh, it, it continues. Um, most CEOs are very, very strong in rational, they're, they're rational people in the sense of they are very, very comfortable with merit-based hierarchies. They're very comfortable with win-loss situations. Um, conformist people don't particularly care about that kind of stuff. Um, they're not, they, they generally tend to make less effective CEOs. Confor- if you're a conformist, what you care about is whether your your organization is meeting the form that you think is the proper form. Hmm. Um, and so uh, a conformist um, will say, let's keep doing it because this is the way we've always done it. And and a more rational person to say, well, we can do it better. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the conformist will go, well, that's wrong. Uh, and, and generally conformists, at least in the marketplace, can't compete very well with rational people. But But since we're complicated, we can be rational in one area, for instance, in, in um, building um, um, value in the company, but be very conformist in another area, say an area of thinking everybody should be completely responsible for themselves. Um, because, why? Because that's how it should be. Everyone should be completely responsible for themselves, and you know, people that need help from other people are somewhat suspect, um, somewhat you know, deserving of contempt. Um, and so hmm. you get the... Uh, hmm. So you have somebody that is very effective at building, at building a company, um, but very dismissive of, of human suffering. That's a dangerous combination. And we see this in, in a lot of multinational corporations over the last 100 years where um, building value is more important than pollution, more important than, mm-hmm. than, properly, uh, than workers um, uh, uh, being treated badly. Um, and, and this is something that is systemic. Uh, one of the dangers about being human is that uh, if I have a chain of command and I have an immature impulse, I get mad at somebody. I can say, tell somebody, well, I want you to go take care of that person. You know, I want you to make them sorry that they challenged our company. And then that person will tell somebody else, yeah, well, we have to go compete with them and we have to you know, make them sorry. We have to wreck their... And then, so the fourth person down the line goes and wrecks somebody or kills somebody even, if we're talking about a military situation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the person at the top really doesn't feel what happens. You know, he doesn't have empathic resonance with, you know, somebody losing his company or people being killed or a, or a country right. being destabilized or something. Um, it's one of the most dangerous things that exists in this planet. Um, and so one of the things I encourage everybody to do is, is think in terms of everybody. Okay? And really good companies make a lot, of, a lot of money, have a lot of profit, do quite well, um, and nobody gets hurt. Very few people get hurt. People tend to get, will get taken care of. And we know those companies. We, we've seen, seen them um, over the years. Um, eventually, I believe, pretty much that'll be the standard for all companies. And we're in a transition stage in the world. Now we have some companies like that, and we have some that aren't like that. And then, you know, we have larger forces at work regulating all that stuff. And then we have a culture of CEOs that have all these demands. And then, you know, you tell that to a CEO, he's, what, I have to now worry about the environment as well as all these other mm -hmm. things? Or I have to worry about you know, uh, paying a living wage to people in Indonesia as well as all this other stuff? And the answer is, yeah, you do. <laughs> you know, you have that responsibility. Denying a responsibility, dissociating from it doesn't make you not responsible. It just means that you're denied or dissociated from your responsibility. You take on that responsibility. Um, and effective CEOs do and are quite effective uh, at getting things done and working for the good of everybody. Um. One of the things I found has helped me, and this is a recent thing for me in running my business and all the various things that are calling for attention in my time, is, is meditating. And uh, prior to, you know, just a year ago, I just thought, okay, no, that's just... They probably don't teach that at business school to mm -hmm. meditate, and and possibly they should. Yet, if we listen to Tim Ferriss talks about every, you know, successful CEO that he's aware of, they all meditate. What? How do you? What? What's the argument you make to the CEO? Because I know you believe in that. Absolutely. Well, I make that argument. Also, you told me about Headspace. Yeah. <laughs> Well, since you told me about Headspace, I've told, I've never had much success. I've taught top meditation to lots of people, including CEOs. Not had much success having people continue a meditation practice. And so now there are technologies around that make it a lot easier. And so Headspace is one of them. And there's other programs and so on. So, so far, that's one of the best ones. Uh, everybody that I've recommended that to love it. So thank you, Mark. Oh, you're welcome. That's uh <laughs> It just, it's had a profound impact on me. Yeah. And it's because he was uh, uh, Andy Puttycomb, Buddhist monk for 20 years. And then was, is part of that practice was talking to corporate groups and talking to CEOs. And he found he had to completely change the language of how he presented the practice yes. to people to put it in a language they would understand. And that evolved into him actually leaving the, the monkhood is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. And um, starting this company and being very, very successful because he's figured out how to talk to us. Well, and, and also we're very practical. Uh, you have to be practical to be a CEO, and so you know you have to make a case for how this is going to help you, and it does. I, I started meditating in 1965 myself, and have ever ever since. Um, what meditation gives you is the capacity to self-observe, self-regulate, and it literally increases your depth of consciousness. Um, it increases ego development. Um, in one study, Christopher Alexander did this study on, on transcendental meditation. He uh, found that people didn't, didn't uh, develop um, uh, uh, vertical—I don't want to use uh, lingo— People's consciousness did not develop significantly between 25 and 55. There, there's levels. They maybe went a half level. There's maybe seven or eight levels that, that human beings are capable of, maybe nine if, for a few of us. Um, people who meditated twice a day after four years, a significant number of them had increased two levels in, mm. in ego development, in their capacity to take multiple perspectives, in their capacity for self-observation, in their capacity for compassionate understanding. Um, that those extra capacities give them extra choices in situations. It gives them a wider view. It gives them an advantage. Um, now, you talk to any CEO, they want an advantage. Not only do they want one, they want everybody on their management team to have one. Right. 
Similarly, um, when you have co these capacities to self-observe, it's easier to observe yourself when you begin to enter uh, states of consciousness, defensive states, and so on, where you're causing problems. You know, say somebody's jealous of somebody on your management team, and, in, and instead of being supportive of their ideas, they kind of are instinctively pushing against those ideas. So you tell this person, this isn't helping, and they get defensive. They go, well, that's because sure. this other person's so-and-so. And so you go, well, that's not acceptable. Go take care of it. You know, go to somebody. So they just, maybe they'll come to me or they'll come to somebody else. And if they have done this work and I go, look, you know, you're, you're actually interfering with this person being a value-added person through your, your um, um, uh, c competitiveness and your, or your sense of threat, um, they might say, well, depending on, on how defensive, how, how much they can observe that defense, they might go, don't talk to me that way and walk out of my office. Or they might say, that's a good point. You know, what do I do about that? That capacity to go, that's a good point, what do I do about that, comes from a capacity for s compassionate self-observation. Co meditation gives you, it, it literally increases the brain area in your frontal lobes that are associated with compassionate self-observation and gives you the tools to do more compassionate self-observation if you choose to use them. So I'm going to connect that back to something you said earlier as a superpower which was being able to receive wise influence. Yeah. So you're suggesting, I think, that that wise influence comes from myself. And, and from others. But, well, but in this case of being able to be self-aware and being contemplative, yes. I am able to observe myself and, ooh, you shouldn't do that or you should self-correct. Exactly. And we've talked about your ability to self-correct gets quicker and quicker and quicker the more observant you are. And that capacity for self-observation is directly increased, um, both neurologically and, and practically, by contemplative practice. So the science is interesting to me because I'm I, I like science. I don't <laughs> know why, but I me just too. I like the science of this. And when I told you about this meditation, which was you know new to me, thousands of years old, but new to me, <laughs> you said your your brain actually there there's some neuroscience that says. It's actually improving. There's, this isn't woo-woo stuff. This is... Esalen has a website that has 20,000 studies on it. That, that's 20,000 uh, that have, have validated the usefulness of meditation. And there's an awful lot of neuroscience. Richard Davidson, um, I think it's in Minnesota, has done this neuroimaging, showing that if you do meditation for eight weeks, your brain is measurably different. That's hmm. eight weeks of meditation. Um, brains love, bodies love meditation. Um, the body um, embraces, loves meditation. Um, and, and now, the, the, um, the converse is true. There was a study done on psychologists who were meditators. And the ones who were meditators had higher empathy scores than the ones that weren't. But for the ones who had stopped meditating, their empathy scores went down again. In other words, it's apparently something that you need to keep doing mm. to keep the capacities mm. going. Um, it reminds me of one of my favorite heroes, Miyamoto Musashi, who wrote a book of five rings in 1645 about the way of the warrior. He said the way is in training. Well, that's true. You know, training is endless. And part of that training is training your mind and your brain and your body um, to grow. I actually look forward to it. It's a, a practice. Now, they, they have a way of gamifying it. Yeah, which is right. great. Which is is good. And now, I mean, I if I've got to be somewhere early in the morning, I'll actually get up early so I've got that time to do that because I there's, again, it's the what's in it for me, uh -huh. right? And, and he actually, it's a guided meditation. He'll say during that, remember why you're doing this. Mm -hmm. who, who is going to benefit from you being better as a result? Why are you here? And, and you really... Every day, you know, you think about that. And then it's just, it's had a really great impact. And hopefully I'm a better CEO as a result of that. I'm sure you are. And you notice that that question, and I'm sure it was deliberate on his part, invites you to self-observe yes. with, with compassion, with acceptance and caring intent. Self-observation with acceptance and caring intent of your sensation, your emotion, your thought, your judgment, and your desires um, is a contemplative practice. It's, it's the most basic contemplative practice that I teach because that'll do the trick. Self-observation with acceptance and caring intent. Now, that sounds great and it sounds easy. It's not. Um, 
you know, say you remembered uh, uh, talking badly to uh, the guy who who um, was late on the deliverable for the program that you ordered, and you were mean to him. Okay, so if you're remembering that, you'll feel a rush of shame. You're not observing yourself with acceptance and caring intent, but you can observe that rush of shame with acceptance and caring intent. And see now we've gone another step outward in self-observation. That other step of outward and self-observation now gives you more options of what to do with that surge of shame about that guy. Okay, this process is endless. Um, in witness meditation, which is a central part of Zen Buddhism, they say that you, you reach this capacity that of inhabiting the witness until finally you, you observe all things in the universe as objects from that one place in you that is not an object. That is the witness meditation. Um, that is the end goal of, of uh, quite a lot of meditative um, practices. I think that's the perfect end for this conversation. <laughs> that, that, Much like Michelangelo trying to find the sculpture inside the stone, you are waiting to find the end, the perfect end in the conversation. This is true. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just enthralled with this idea of superpowers. We, we talk about that a lot and how do you discover... We've had this some semblance of this thread through several conversations to figure out one guy said that his role, his destiny is to help people discover their gift, and uh, superpowers Super a gift. Bad. And you rattled through you know, five or six of them that people could actually, and, and I believe you said we have them, whether how well they're developed and how aware they are. I was thinking as you were saying, this idea of being witness would keep you from disassociating. It sounds like disassociation is, is very bad. And yes. that if I'm witness to things, I can't be disassociated because I'm associated by default. Yeah, we're talking about contemplative practice now. Dissociation is not feeling something. Disidentification is feeling it, but not identifying with it. Hmm. If you feel something and don't identify with it, there is a part of you that is observing with acceptance and caring intent. And you'll find this in the best CEOs. Um, there is always a sense about them. Um, of observing the, the, the room and wanting to make the, the best decision um, with, the, with the especially good CEOs. They want to make the best decision not just for the company, um, not just for the shareholders, but for everybody. Hmm. Okay? Those people um, uh, elicit enormous loyalty and admiration from the people around them. Um, uh, now, <laughs> you got to walk the walk and walking the walk recognizes that the ways in training that you have to kind of do constant work on yourself um, uh, that's one of the reasons that therapy is useful um, for CEOs you know there's an environment where they can examine in a safe environment where they don't have to do all right. this stuff right. you know what's working what's not working how am I feeling how am I not feeling how's everything going and so on you know are there some signs from some place that, that there, there's a tension let's look at those um, that tends to be a stress reducer, and that's a good thing. Um, Keith, how how do um, how do people find you on the internets, and if they want to talk to you? Um, uh, my website is drkeithwitt.com, K-E-I-T-H-W-I-T-T. Um, my website has uh, many lectures, conversations, videos, audios. Um, I've written five books, the most recent one being Integral Mindfulness. You can find them on Amazon.com or on my website um, in electronic form. Um, my office number is listed. Okay. <laughs> Just ask information. They'll tell you how to get a hold of the key. Google knows how to find you. Google knows how to find me. Um, and, uh, and that's how you get a hold of Keith. Well, Keith, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. All of our conversations are great. And this one we recorded so other people can, <laughs> can listen yes. in. So um, one of the things we get to do on 805 Conversations is we know that there is a tremendous amount of power in what we name the episode. Mm-hmm. Because people are going to scroll through a list of all the episodes. We have new listeners every day. Mm-hmm. And welcome. And they are just looking at those titles. Mm-hmm. And you get first dibs on giving a title to this talk. CEO Empowerment. Okay. Wait, he didn't even... No. Did he blink? He didn't blink. I love that. Um, 
and I, I predict this will be a, another one of our top performers. A great conversation. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate um, the great stories and all the help that you give to people. And next time we do a TEDx, would you come on stage? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> great. Well, thank Keith. Thanks again. And thanks again to California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and & Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Pull String Press. You want to make sure... You listen to their show called Towned. Uh, I I love that show, Patrick. Yeah, we have uh, we have a lot of interesting episodes. By the time this one is up, you can go and listen to our current mayor, Helene Snyder, is on Towned uh, next week, and she'll be uh, giving us all the insight on what it feels like to run for Congress. Wow, that's something from mayor to Congress. We also want to thank Cielo Twenty Four, who provides the searchable captions for our show. The 805 Connect project is supported by partners and sponsors throughout the region. We want to thank them as well. More information is at 805connect.com. Now, Patrick, how the listener who hopefully was inspired and informed by this episode, how could they help us? Well, the best thing ever is just to find a friend, uh, a listening buddy. Go find a friend who hasn't heard uh, mm. any of our shows and uh, uh, grab their phone. and Grab uh, their phone. And uh, go to the podcast app and subscribe for them. That will help them out and help us out. And then also go back in and uh, give us a review. Uh, provide any kind of feedback uh, that you like. We love reading uh, what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong even more. And what should they do about their mom? Oh, they should definitely call, <laughs> call, call, call your mothers. They are sitting there right now staring at, at the lonely, sad phone that is sitting there not ringing. Get on the phone. Talk to your mom. It'll make your day a whole lot better. And I'm looking at my inbox because I love hearing from people who are listening. And they may not want to actually go to the effort of going to the iTunes store. Well, I get that. But it's sure easy to send email to mark at 805connect.com. And tell me what you think about the show who you'd like to hear, where you think we should be focusing. I've uh, just recently had the opportunity to talk to some listeners, uh, random people who came up and said, oh, I was just driving here and I was listening to one of your shows. I love that. I've got a, a, a lady in Montecito who has no clue how to listen to a podcast. <laughs> and uh, she asks me to burn them onto CDs, and, uh, which I do. And I deliver Aww. them to her mailbox. I feel like I'm her information pusher. Uh, and she listens to them on her drives to Los Angeles. And I appreciate that. So getting to talk to people. So send email to market 805connect.com. Let me know what you like about the show. So until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations. 